bring this to your attention so you can see the Roadrunner. Now, honestly, in that whole clip there, it was about a minute long. You never saw the Roadrunner. You notice that? You saw the coyote. You never saw the Roadrunner. What did you see? Yeah. Beep, beep. And you saw dust. Yeah. Just a cloud of dust. Beep, beep. And just dust. Yeah. That cloud of dust is what needs to be in your mind as we go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to talk about church leadership. And that cloud of dust that the roadrunner leaves behind is exactly what you need to picture. Because honestly, one of the key words in our scripture today, the word deacon, literally means one who makes the dust fly from his feet. It's from a Greek word. It kind of means dirty feet people, but that's the idea. It's a servant. Servants in the ancient world were the only ones who went barefoot. A servant went barefoot. And a servant was responsible to make the dust fly from their feet if there was a need, if the master needed something. So, church leadership involves a whole lot of clouds of dust, and we need more and more people who are kicking it up, and that's the passage today from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Read along with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is writing a letter here. Paul the Apostle is writing a letter. He wrote several letters to this young man, Timothy. The first letter we call 1 Timothy. The second one is 2 Timothy. You probably know that. Timothy was a young pastor at a church in a town called Ephesus. So Paul is writing to young pastor Timothy who is in the church at Ephesus. And there is trouble in the church at Ephesus. And honestly, if you look at chapter 1 and read through, you'll begin to understand that the problems are leadership problems. And so Paul writes a passage here concerning leadership, and we're going to read it together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an elder, a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home. And he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? An elder must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. And Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons must be well respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. And if they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. In the same way, women must be respected and must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. A deacon must be faithful to his wife, and he must manage his children and household well. Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. Let's talk about leadership. How many of you have ever seen the show Survivor? Uh, CBS, I think the new season's about to kick off. I, I like it. I haven't seen that show in a long, long time. Honestly, I think the last season I watched was the season where they had a preacher in, in the cast. You remember that? Of course you don't, because the preacher was only there the first night. 
one night. And they advertised, you know, the, you know, the doctor, the lawyer, the pastor. And, and it was a pastor. I'm thinking, oh, no, Lord, please. Because honestly, if they're going to put a pastor on the show, I was just worried about, you know, what in the world they were going to put out there. I was hoping he'd be a, a really good example, you know, just a good, a good example of Christ, you know, represent the church well, represent ministry well. And I also just wanted him to be an awesome survivor. You know, how awesome, you know, see the pastor out there eating bugs and stuff. That was going to be cool. I was excited. So I sat down the first night, and of course the first night, you're meeting all the cast, and you're meeting all these you know, crazy people, and the pastor, who was really normal, y'all, he was great. He had a good sense of humor, he was polite to everybody, I thought everybody was getting along with the preacher, I mean I did, got divided into tribes, and the preacher was a good hard worker on his tribe, and I mean he was awesome. On the pastor's tribe was this little termite of a woman, y'all remember her, who got sick on day one? Like, I expect 30 days in, after you've been eating, you know, weird stuff, you'd have diarrhea and stuff. But, man, she started that on day one. Little bitty lady with diarrhea, and she couldn't hold down water. So the whole time, like that whole episode, she's like, like always, I mean, this little bitty thing. And I'm thinking, she gone. You know, she is so gone. Nobody wants, you know, a diarrhea woman on your team, you know, for 40 days. She's gone. I mean, I I figured this out. I mean, if you watch the show, you know who's got to go diarrhea woman but no they didn't talk about it there was no like hint at all that they were ganging up and sure enough that night they kept diarrhea woman and everybody voted the preacher off y'all want to laugh and stuff but you're afraid you hurt my feelings right yeah i understand i know how this works I, i really do you're not surprised i was like what what how can they not love him he's a preacher but they didn't love him they voted him off with glee. I mean, just gone. He's just gone. You know, I, I don't understand it really, but I guess I get it. That church leaders just aren't, aren't real popular in our culture. And the reason for that is by this point, nearly everybody has a story to tell about a bad experience or a bad example, somebody that they knew who was a pastor or a deacon or some other sort of church leader who was a really horrible, horrible example of Christ. And for that reason, they're bitter and angry and they think poorly of the rest of us. I mean, I get that. That's the culture we live in. Church leaders of all kinds are not necessarily held up in high esteem in, in, our, in our community. And, and, and I grieve that, but I understand it. That's how it is. And honestly, that's how it was in Ephesus. Again, the problem that Paul is addressing here is a leadership problem. You would think that it's the early church and they wouldn't have had a lot of time yet to get a lot of turkeys in leadership, but no, turkeys just run to leadership. I mean, it's, they've got a big problem here and it's not a problem not having enough workers. They got some really bad, bad leaders. I mean, they got people in leadership at Ephesus that have no business in leadership, men and women in leadership with no business in leadership. And this is what Paul's writing about. I mean, these leaders are a problem. But notice how Paul leads. It's absolutely amazing. Verse 1, chapter 3. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. I mean, clearly, it's an honorable thing to step into a leadership role at church. Paul has to say it, and maybe I have to say it. It's an honorable thing. And I'm not just saying it because I'm a pastor. It's in the Bible. This is a good thing. It's a good thing to lead at church. It's a good thing to be one of the people kicking up dust to see that the Lord's work is done. That's a good thing. 
But for some reason, it isn't always considered a good thing in the minds of outsiders, and it's not even considered a good thing in the church itself. I can say that because as your, I've been your pastor 21 years. Every single year, our church nominates men to be deacons. And typically in a nomination phase, we'll nominate dozens and dozens and dozens of different qualified men. All of these are good men who could serve well. But at the end of the church's nominating dozens and dozens of men, we will end up with a handful, most years maybe two, maybe three, on a good year five. What I'm seeing is for some reason in churches like Woodburn, and it's not just Woodburn, but in churches like Woodburn, good, qualified people choose not to step into leadership at church. They just don't. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have any leaders. We have a lot of leaders. I mean, our church and churches are filled with people who run businesses. There's people like you who, who absolutely run banks and law offices and real estate offices. I mean, I mean we've got doctors, nurses, nurse, nurse practitioners, educators of all kinds, administrators. We have amazing people in our church. We have hundreds of amazing people. But what I'm saying is, for the most part, and it's not just our church, for the most part, God's people use their gifts elsewhere, but they don't often engage them in the church. You engage all of your best energies and all of your best gifts. You just don't necessarily do it in a way that helps to work at the church. So let me just remind you what Paul says. It's a good thing. It's an honorable thing to do the work at church. It's an honorable thing to step up and, and, and do your part. That's a good thing, Paul said. It's good. But what does it mean? What exactly does it mean to lead at church? So we use the word lead and that confuses people. Ever since Jesus, the idea of leadership is absolutely turned upside down for those of us who follow him. I was ordained into ministry in 1987 by Woodburn Baptist Church. Thank you, folks. You believed in a, in a, in a moron, a you know, 20-year-old kid you know, that didn't wear socks. And, and, uh, and, and thank you for believing in me. You, you saw something in me that, that, that I couldn't have seen. Um, I served Woodburn in about, for about seven years during the 80s, uh, and then Casey and I moved to Louisville. We joined a church called Hurstburn Baptist Church, a very fine church in Louisville, fantastic church. I was going to go to seminary, and I wasn't going to step right back into ministry, so we recognized that this was a period of time when we would get to just be like normal church people. So we got to sit and worship together. My wife and I never sit and worship together ever. I mean, sometimes a business meeting, but y'all... You know, that's not, that's not worship. Uh, we don't sit and worship together, but, it, but in those years, we did. We got to sit in church together. Uh, we kept the nursery together, which I love that so much. We um, sang in the choir together, which was just amazing. That was fun, too. Uh, and uh, by and by, I was selected to serve as a deacon at, at Hurstburn. I was on the personnel committee, just lots of good stuff. But the deacon thing is what God saw, because they were about to ordain all their new deacons. And the question came up. Should I, be or should I be ordained? Should I be reordained? I was ordained here as, as, as a minister, but th does that mean I need to be reordained to be a deacon in Hurstburn? Well, nobody knew because, uh, honestly, those kind of questions the Bible doesn't answer. I mean, the Bible doesn't say much about ordination at all. I, I mean, seriously, not at all. So we sort of have to just discern what's, what's best. So I asked my pastor who had a military background. I said, you know, Pastor... I've been ordained into ministry. I'm about to be a deacon here at Hurstburn. Should I be reordained? I don't mind it. Actually, I, I would not have minded at all if that church had laid hands on me as well. But my pastor thought a minute, and again, he's military. He said, no, the way I see it, 
you've already been put at the level of lieutenant. And we're just asking you to be a sergeant. No, no, no. I love my pastor, and he didn't really mean it the way it sounded. But lieutenant and sergeant? Those are ideas of rank. Those are ideas of of status. And and I'm telling you, church leadership doesn't have anything to do with rank and status. You've really got to understand that calling someone a leader at church says something about their function, but not their status. That's because of Jesus. Jesus turns the whole idea of status, who's important, who's more important than everybody else. Jesus turns that upside down. Jesus looked at his disciples and says, out there in the world, they like to lord it over other people. They like to have power over people. But that's not how it's going to be with you. Jesus talking to his followers. That's not how it's going to be with you. We're going to have you know, people lording it over others. If you want to lead, Jesus said, you must learn how to serve. The one who leads is going to be the one who serves. And the one who wants to be first is going to have to learn how to be the Last, So Jesus turns all of this totally upside down. Please spread the word in churches. There's no rank here. We're all parts of the same body of Christ, and we have different functions. Now, I'm your pastor. That's my function. That doesn't make me the most important member. I'm not. I'm no more important than any one of you. This morning, I am using my gifts to serve the body of Christ here at Woodburn Baptist Church, I assume you're doing the same thing. And my serving's not more important than your serving. It may be more visible, but it's not more important and it's not necessarily more powerful. It could be that the most powerful servant in this house is one of those down the hall teaching children or somebody changing your baby's diaper right now. I'm telling you, it's about function, not status. And I'm not criticizing other pastors. They can all do their own thing. But, but it always kind of bugs me when you, when you see the church that has the, the parking place right up front that says, Pastor's Parking. What's that about? Is he crippled? Because honestly, if I'm crippled, I'll do that. When I'm crippled, y'all help me. But until then, why do I get a better parking place than everybody else? I got legs. And you've got legs. It's, it's not status. It's, it's function. It's always function. Christ is the head of the church. The rest of us are parts of the body, me included. We're just parts of the same body. There's no rank here. It doesn't make one of us more important. Not at all. Read what Paul says in Corinthians. Read about the body of Christ. It, it's not like lieutenants and sergeants. You're not all privates. Do you understand what we're saying here? So 1 Timothy chapter 3 becomes one of the, honestly, one of the most important passages about leadership because it's one of the longest places in in, in one single conversation where we're even talking about leadership at all. The New Testament doesn't do a lot of that. It just doesn't. It's not very self-reflective as far as how the churches operate. We know next to nothing about the church at Ephesus. We know almost nothing about the church at Corinth. All we know is what we find in these letters that Paul writes. That's all we know. And nowhere does Paul really give us a manual of church leadership. He just doesn't. We don't have it. That's why when you go out and you visit other churches, you find all kinds of leadership structures. 
Here at Woodburn Baptist, we have pastor and we have deacons and, and all kinds of volunteers and workers. And as I say, we're all the same. We're all very much the same. It's a priesthood of the believers and Christ is ahead of this church. And we're all, all just the same. We're, we're body, body members of Christ. But you go up the street and you can find a church with pastor and elders. We don't have elders. Actually, this passage mentions elders. And in, in verse 1, should we get elders? I mean, some churches have elders and and all the churches with elders insist that that's the biblical model. Well, we got deacons. It's here too. So deacons must, I mean, we insist we follow the biblical model. You go all the way up the street, you'll find a church that has a, they have a, a presbytery. What? And they got bishops and, and, and they got regional superintendents and they got all kinds of stuff. We never, I mean, you, know, you can't even find a regional superintendent in here. Bishops. Honestly, that word translated elder would be bishop, you know, if, if you love bishops. I mean, people got bishops, y'all. Popes. Y'all want a pope? We could crown one of you pope. I mean, I mean, you know, churches have all kinds of ways of doing this. And every single denomination, every single tradition, every single church will tell you that they are doing it the New Testament way. They all say that. We all say that. How can everybody be right? Well, I think we are. I think it's fine. I don't see any place where it says all the churches have to be run in the same way. Again, every church is a local body of Christ and Christ is the head. And, and honestly, if you look in the New Testament, I'm not sure that they're all the same. We don't really see a, a leadership structure that's spelled out like with a chart, a, like you have it working, organizational chart. We, we don't see that. Instead, what we have is this basic New Testament pattern that probably reflects this fluid structure of leadership that meets the evolving needs of growth. It seems fluid. It seems that as churches grow, as the gospel spreads, and you move into different places, you can end up with leadership that looks a little bit different, and the New Testament seems okay with that. Again, I call you back to Acts chapter 6, where the church had apostles, y'all. They had apostles. And the apostles find out that as the church grows, that they feel torn. They feel like their primary calling, their gift in the body, is to bring the ministry of the word and tend to the ministry of prayer. But all of a sudden, there's so many practical needs, and they say, we can't do it all. We can't do it all. So they call the very first business meeting, read the book of Acts, the very first business meeting, and they decide to put some guys up in, 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 in a place to help with the work. So they assign some guys, and those guys' job becomes to take care of the widows, make sure the widows don't go hungry, and so that the apostles can do their part. It's just Acts chapter 6. Lots of people say, and those are the first deacons. Well, see, that's the thing. Acts chapter 6 never calls them deacons. It doesn't call them anything. It just shows us how the church worked. When there's a need, you need to find some people who kick up some dust and go take care of that need. And and that's how leadership works in the New Testament. It's just this fluid structure of leadership. And as churches grow and the ministry becomes more complex, the structures become complex. But a church like Woodburn, we don't need all that. We don't necessarily have to have what the church up the street has. And, and they don't have to adopt what we have. We all just follow the Spirit. He's the head of this church. And, and as our church grows, our leadership structure changes as well. 
Back in the day, across the street, we had 70 people at Woodburn Baptist Church in a little bitty white wooden building, and we had pastor and deacons, just a handful of deacons. But honestly, at that point, when the deacons decided they would divide up the church role, and all the deacons would have families, and they would take care of the needs of the family so that the pastor could take care of the preaching, and that's how we did it for a long, long time. But now the church has grown grown astronomically compared to where we were. And now people walk around going, who's my deacon? Who's my deacon? And the deacons walk around saying, who are my families? Who are my... I mean, our church has grown so much that the old structure doesn't necessarily serve us well anymore. So our deacons are at work now to develop a new structure to redefine their role to meet the needs of the congregation now. We don't just try to fit into a structure. We have to meet needs. Ministry happens when needs are met, not when people are placed in positions. Needs have to be met. And when there is a need, we need people who kick up some dust and, and, and split a trail to get to that place where the need can be met. That's what ministry is. So uh, where do you start? How, how do you do this? As I say, Paul doesn't really give us a manual of church leadership. And even in this passage, which is one of the longest passages on church leaders and deacons, we don't have a job description. We really don't even know much of what deacons did or what elders did. It sounds like a number of them were involved in teaching because one of the requirements is that they be able to teach, but we don't know that they were all teaching elders. We just don't know. That's not what Paul gives us. And honestly, this is the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I believe that what we have is what God intended us to have. And we don't have job descriptions. Instead, what we have are not descriptions of positions, but descriptions of the people. We don't ever really find out exactly what a deacon's supposed to do. We're just given really clear instructions about the kind of person that would make a good deacon. So understand, it's about character. So this is what Paul says, again, in verse 2. A church leader, an elder, must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, have a good reputation. He must enjoy hospitality. He must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. You know what strikes me about that list of qualities right there? There's not a thing in that list that should not apply to every single one of us. Do you see that? I mean, that should describe all of us. You should be a man or a woman whose life is above reproach. You should be a person who's faithful to your spouse. You should be a person of self-control and wisdom and good reputation. You should be able to teach. You should not be a heavy drinker. You shouldn't be violent. You should not love money. I mean, this is just the way of Christ. This is what a Christian looks like. So recognize what Paul does here. He doesn't raise the bar incredibly for church leaders. In other words, it's not really about finding perfect people. It's about finding good examples. Just good examples. In other words, these are the same qualities that you look for with everybody in the church. So find some, find some people who are good examples of Christ. People who are good examples of what a Christian ought to be. We're not talking about super Christians. We're just talking about people who are good examples I think sometimes some of you uh, hesitate to step into church leadership because you feel like you're not good enough. Not looking for perfection here, just a good example. Just a good example of all the things that Christ and this church represents. We just need good examples. 
So how do you find a good example? That's where it gets interesting. Paul kind of has this look in two places. First place, he must manage his family well, having children who respect and obey him. If a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? Verse 12, deacon must be faithful to his wife, manage his children and household well. What are we talking about here? Talking about a man who's a man of his house. A man who's, who's in control. I don't, I don't know if that's what we're looking for because, again, remember Jesus says if you want to lead, you've got to serve. I don't think we're talking about somebody who's, who's control of his house. I think we're talking about paying attention to those who are most directly shaped by his influence. Now, I think this is exactly what Paul is saying. You look at the family because the family involves the people closest to this candidate for leadership you're considering. So these are the children. These are the ones who are most directly shaped every single day by this person's influence. So it's a really good place to look. Take a look at the marriage. Take a look at the spouse. This spouse is becoming day by day more and more of the woman this man is is creating her to be. I mean, we have a tremendous impact on our family members. So I think it's a very, very safe thing to direct attention to the family. Now, let's stop right there. A lot of churches go way too far in the wrong direction with this. They put way too much pressure on the families of ministers and deacons and elders and all of that. We somehow elevate and put those families in a glass bowl. If you've been around church life long, you probably heard people talk about, you know, wild deacons, kids. I mean, you've got to watch those deacons, kids. I mean, they're the wildest kids. Those preachers, kids, you know, don't ever get near the preachers, kid. Man, that kid's crazy. I mean, there's just stories of these ministers' kids, church leaders' kids who are always somehow the worst kids. And why do we do that to kids? They're kids. They're normal kids. I mean, the church should not lose its mind every time a deacon's kid eats a booger. I mean, you understand? They're human kids. They're regular kids. They're going to misbehave. We're not ordaining the kids. We're ordaining the the parent, the, the father. You understand what I'm saying here? You pay close attention to the family because that tells you something about the person's influence. But we're not grading the family. We're not grading the kids. We're not going back to make sure that all the pastor's wives have flaky pie crusts and can play the piano. It's not about that. We're looking at the the man, his influence, and those who are most directly shaped by his influence. And, And you can tell a lot about a man by looking at his family. Now, let me stop right there and say this. I've been your pastor 21 years. My son spent his entire life at Woodburn Baptist Church. Thank you. Thank you. You're not that church. Our deacon's kids don't feel weird. My son never felt weird. My son is weird, but he never felt weird. Thank you. Uh, You were were magnificent. This church never, ever, you know, Wade was never in in a class where somebody said, hey, Wade, you pray. You're the preacher's kid. Nobody ever set him apart like that. Nobody ever, not one time, put extra pressure on him. Thank you for that. My son is now going into ministry, and I'm telling you, my, my number one fear for him is when he gets out there into a church and finds out that not all churches are like Woodburn. I'm honest. He's going to find out that not all churches are like Woodburn. Um, thank you for being a really good church for, for ministers and deacons and their families. You're, you're, you're magnificent. But when I'm sitting in a meeting interviewing a potential deacon one of the questions i like to ask is a question that comes from this passage this point i'm talking about with the family i I love to say would your family ordain you would your wife ordain you would your children i mean when we read this list of qualities he must be faithful 
to his wife. He must exercise self-control. He must live wisely, have a good reputation. He must enjoy having people over. He must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker. He must not be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, not love money. When, when your kids hear those qualities, do they instantly think of dad? You know, when your wife reads these qualities, he must enjoy having people over. He must not be a heavy drinker. He must not be violent. He must be gentle. I mean, would your wife instantly want to lay hands on you and affirm that? Because I think this is what we're getting to. What kind of man are you really? And your family knows you. They know you well. And they know whether or not there's a different man at church than the man that they have to eat supper with on weeknights. They know. Would they ordain you? Would, would they affirm that? Would, would they say that, yeah, my husband, my, my father, man, he is all these things. Good example. So, so Paul says you, you pay attention to, to what the family would say, how the family would respond. And then the other thing Paul says here in verse 6 and 7, elder must not be a new believer because he might become proud. The devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him. Isn't that interesting? Paul says, if you're looking for potential leaders, pay attention to what people outside the church say about them. Pay attention to what outsiders say. Now, you would think, why does that even matter? Outsiders don't vote. We're not going to ask the outsiders to come in and lay hands on our deacons. What does it matter what the outsiders say? It matters a great deal what the outsiders say. This is Paul's point. There's a particular trap of the devil, and this is what Paul is trying to get us to recognize. People outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced. It's an amazing word. That's a gospel word, grace. So this person must not be disgraced. He must not bring disgrace upon himself. He must not bring disgrace upon his family. He must not disgrace the church. He must not disgrace the name of Christ. And this is what happens when you put a person in church leadership who's not the same guy when he leaves church. It becomes a disgrace when people out there run into our leaders, our deacons. And when I say our, I mean the church in general, not just Woodburn. But when, when the, the world out there meets people who are supposed to be something at the church. And, and, but the people that are at work, the men and women at work, are nothing like Christ. That's a disgrace, Paul says. It's a disgrace. So it's another way to think about potential leaders. I mean, one of the questions to ask is, you know... It, when the guys at work find out that you're about to be ordained as a deacon, would they be surprised? When the people at, church, when the people at work find out that you're a deacon at church, would, would that surprise them? You know, I'll be honest. I've been pastor 21 years, and through those years, I've had people from the outside come and tell me about our deacons. Not all of them, but every now and then we get one in there that, that's off the path. And the people at work will come and say, I'll tell you, you may, he may be one thing at church, but let me tell you about the man that I know on the golf course. I mean, that's just real life, you all. And it's a disgrace. We, we, we can't do that. You can't. We're not talking about perfect people, but good examples. You have to be a good example. And that example is held forth in the world, too, in the community. Because when you step out there, you represent the name of Jesus. You represent the church. And Paul says it's a disgrace. It's just a disgrace when men and women who are supposed to be something at church don't manage to be, be the good example in the community. I'd go so far as to say this. When Christian leaders disgrace themselves before the community, the devil wins. I mean, Paul says it. It's, it's a trap of his. It's one of his favorite tricks. 
The best way to bring down the reputation of the church in the world is just to bring down the reputation of the leaders. Make the leaders look foolish in the world. Make the leaders live a, a contradiction, and the devil wins. And a whole lot of us through the years, we've, we've disgraced ourselves. We've disgraced the church. We've not been good examples. By this point, nearly everybody everywhere has a story to tell about a deacon, a pastor, somebody who is a disgrace. Kind of makes you sour on the whole thing. Some of you left other churches because the leadership in that church went so badly, and now you're here, but you're never going to serve because you don't want to get back in that mess. It was a mess. Let me just remind you, Paul says it's maybe messy, but at the same time, it's a really honorable thing. It's a good thing to step into leadership at church. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's honorable. And it would be honorable for you to become one of those people who kicks up some dust around here. I'm not talking about making everybody more and more busy at church. We're not talking about being busy at church. We're talking about doing the work of the Lord in the world. And we all have a part to play in that. We're all parts of the same body, right? My part's not more important than yours. So what's your part? What's your part? God is calling you to, to step in, to use your gifts, to, to, to kick up some dust for the sake of the name of Jesus. Then you need to do that. It might be a public role at church. It might be a title that you will hold. Or it might be something just more behind the scenes that nobody ever knows but you and God. But there's a lot of work to do, which means there's a lot of dust clouds that need to be kicked up and we need more and more people who are kicking those up I'm just saying and I, and I think the scripture says that if, if the Lord's calling you be one of those people kicking up some dust it's a good thing if you would do that it'd be a good thing pray with me But God, I, I thank you for this church. I, I thank you for 150 years of people who served so humbly and so sacrificially. I thank you, Lord, for all the years and years and years of deacons who were such good examples to me. I thank you, Lord, for the pastors who've gone before me, Lord, who preached the word with, with, with truth and with power and with conviction and then lived a life of integrity in the world. Lord, thank you for those men and women, Lord, who have shown us how to do it. Now, Lord, help us to do it well ourselves now. Or some of us have uh, tried to retire. Some of us have tried to uh, just slide in and out of church on Sunday and not get involved, Lord. But the work of the gospel, Lord, falls to all of us. We have the same great commission and the same great commandment, Lord. Our feet need to be kicking up a little more dust. Or there are needs all around us and more needs than possibly the deacon and the, and the pastors could ever, Lord, fill, Lord. We just need everybody running in the direction of the need. So, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see the needs and see our own desire and gifts, Lord, so that we're willing to step in, not wait for somebody else. Thank you, Lord, today for the launch of Journey Church and those who've gone there to lead, to work, to serve. Thank you right now for those changing diapers in the nursery and those, Lord, who are watching our children and 
those who cut the lawn this week and those who are manning screens and soundboards and lights and taking up the offering and greeting at the door, those who folded bulletins and printed bulletins, Lord, there's a whole lot of work that goes on around here, Lord. I thank you for those who are kicking up the dust to get it done. Lord, when more of us kick up the dust, we'll get more work done for you. So, Lord, help us to do more work for you, for you. You give us the strength. You stir our hearts. You put the gifts in us, Lord. We'll do it for you.